Well, it's good to be back here again with you uh, this week. And um, where are you? You did really well with all those ites at the end. They're, they're not easy to read. So, uh, well done. We're going to look at a doctrine today that, uh, as far as uh, modern scholarship is concerned, is probably one of the most significant Christian doctrines that is under attack. I want to talk to you today about the whole understanding of justification by faith alone. I want to ask you this question. Can the righteousness of someone else be counted for me? Because that's what the Christian message says. Or I want to ask you another question. How can something such as faith merit righteousness? Now let me try and illustrate what I'm trying to say. Imagine we're at the New South Wales Supreme Court. You are at a murder trial and the jury has just passed down its verdict to the judge and the judge declares that the person has been found to be guilty. You go back to the the courtroom a little bit later and it's time for sentencing. Now picture this. The person's been found guilty beyond reasonable doubt. The judge then says, I'm a righteous person. I've never killed anybody as far as the law is concerned. And so he or she gives to that accused person their righteousness. And the judge then says, I'm going to go to prison for the next 24 years instead of you. What do you reckon the Sydney Morning Herald is going to do with that the next day? They're going to tear it to shreds. That's not justice. It's not justice for the judge to go off to prison and for the criminal to go scot-free. So why can you say that you, on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, can go free? Is that just? If it doesn't work in our courts of law, in our houses of justice... How does that work in God's house of justice? It raises some really significant issues for us. Is righteousness a transferable commodity? And what is so significant about faith that it merits righteousness? Well, we come this afternoon to a verse that is incredibly central to the Old Testament. There it is up there on the screen. It's verse 6 of chapter 15. Abram believed the Lord and God counted it, that's the faith, to him as righteousness. It's a verse that's quoted in the Old Testament, obviously. It's repeated in the New Testament at several occasions. It's in the great doctrines of the Reformation. Uh, If you're an Anglican, it's there in your doctrinal basis of the 39 articles. If you're a Baptist... It's in the Savoy Confession. If you're a Presbyterian, it's there in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Or, I mean, to trump all of those, uh, if you're a member of the EU, it's there in the EU doctrinal basis. That the righteousness of somebody else can be merited to me on the basis of faith. How does that work? Well, as you can see there on the screen, it's quoted by Paul in Romans. Look at how he picks up Genesis 15 verse 6. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted for us who believe in him who raised from the dead, 
Jesus our Lord. Luther said, when this article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Calvin says it's the main hinge upon which religion turns. Okay, three things I'm going to ask. Here's my first thing I'm going to ask. Firstly, what is the relationship between doubt and faith? What is this whole thing of faith and how does it merit righteousness? The second thing I'm going to ask is how is it that the righteousness of another can be merited to me as righteousness on the basis of faith when I've just shown you how it doesn't work in our own courts of law, how could it possibly work in God's court of law? And thirdly, once we've established that, I'm then going to say, well, what does that all mean for us? So firstly, what's the relationship in doubt and, doubt and faith, then faith and righteousness, then the so what question. Let's look firstly then at the relationship between doubt and faith. Now, if you were listening carefully when that passage was read, you would have noticed that it was a passage that was all about doubt. It wasn't a passage about faith. I mean, have a look at your Bibles there. In verse 2, Abram says to God, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Does he sound like he's expressing faith? And he says, and the heir is going to be Eliezer of Damascus, one of my servants. I mean, here's Abram, he's 80 years of age. There's Sarai, she's 70. And let me tell you, your biological clock has stopped ticking at 70. Actually, just about everything has stopped ticking at 70. She is well beyond the age of having children. Look at verse 3. Behold, you have given me no offspring. Abram's expressing doubt in this passage. And so why does God talk about his faith? What's the relationship between doubt and faith? Well, just imagine that uh, you've just got engaged. You know, he has finally noticed you and he has finally got around to popping that question. And all of a sudden, you know what it's like when people get engaged. Maybe you've got engaged. Maybe you've, I'm sure you've known people when they get engaged. And there's this absolute whirl of activity and excitement. They go out, they buy a ring, they meet the parents, they have a party, they're shopping for a dress. They're, the world is an absolute whirl of excitement. Now, let me tell you, I'm a minister and I, I've married lots of people. Uh, not just my wife, I've married lots and lots of people. And <laughs> let me tell you, I've been involved in pre-marriage stuff with lots of people as well. And let me tell you how it goes. Nearly every time, not every time, but nearly. The whirl of excitement happens for about five or six weeks and then they go crash in the middle of the engagement. And do you know what their minds are full of? Doubt. Three sorts of doubt. Sometimes there's doubt about me. Am I really ready for marriage? Sometimes it's doubt about the fiancé. Are they really ready for marriage? And sometimes it's doubt about the whole marriage thing anyhow. Doubts are expressed. So I'm going to officiate the wedding in a little, little while and they come along and see me and they say we have doubts. Well, here's some really good counselling. Oh, don't doubt, just believe. Now off you go. Does that work? What are we going to do? We're going to meet doubt honestly. Now I want to say to you this afternoon that if you doubt about Christianity, 
whether you call yourself a Christian or an agnostic or a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist, whatever you happen to call yourself, if you doubt about Christianity, I want to say to you, that's a really good thing. And I want to encourage you in that doubt. But only if it's the right sort of doubt. Because there is a good doubt and there is a bad doubt. Good doubt is asking real questions that are looking for real answers. That's honest doubt. Now, even after you get married, for those of you who aren't married, here's a secret from someone who is married. After you get married, and this happens in about 100% of marriages, people continue to doubt. And you know what? As they actually accept those doubts, rather than suppress and repress them, but actually verbalise those doubts and they work through them, do you know what happens? The relationship grows in honesty. A good doubt is a doubt that has real questions looking for real answers. And about 20% of people who doubt have that sort of doubt. The other 80% have a bad sort of doubt. And a bad sort of doubt is a doubt that doesn't even ask questions at all. It sounds like you're asking questions, but you actually want to pick a fight. And you actually, all you want to do is to justify your preconceptions and your presuppositions. And if that's the sort of doubt you have, it's destructive. It'll never get you anywhere. But Abram expresses real doubt. And let me tell you, he'd be dishonest if he didn't. Think about what's happened in the story so far. He's left Ur of the Chaldees. He's left his family. He's left his culture. He's left his homeland. He's gone and he's built altars, for those of you who were here last week, all the way through the land, all the way down to the Negev. And God has been promising, he's actually up to now promised three times to provide a son by Sarah from his own body. But she's 70. He'd be absolutely naive not to doubt the promise of God by this stage. And so he asks God, What's happening? What does God do amidst Abram's doubt? Does he come to Abram and say, Abram, how dare you doubt me? Just believe. No, this is what God does in the passage. He meets Abram at his point of doubt and he challenges Abram at his point of doubt. Now think about that with Jesus in the New Testament. There's this guy in the New Testament, his name is Thomas. We normally call him Doubting Thomas, that's the one, okay, he's the guy that's full of doubt. Do you remember they say, you know, this Jesus, he died three days ago, but he's got back up again out of the tomb physically and he's walking around. And you know what Thomas says? Unless I can get my hands and place them in his side, unless I can get my fingers and put them in the nail marks, I will not believe. And then he meets Jesus. Does Jesus come to him and say, naughty Thomas, You should never have doubted. Listen to what Jesus says. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. He actually meets him at his exact point of doubt. But he doesn't leave it there. He then goes on and challenges him and he says, but do not disbelieve but believe. Now, there's two errors that your church could fall into. 
And as I go around different churches, I see most churches fall into one of these two errors. One error, which is really common in evangelical churches, is that they tell you you're not allowed to doubt. They tell you you're not allowed to question. Now, if you know a church like that, I wonder if that church is even confident about the fact that it has the truth. I am so committed to the fact that Christianity is true that I'm prepared to question. In fact, if I wasn't prepared to question, I'd actually be doubting the veracity of Christianity. If your church does not allow you to question, and I'm not talking about 80% of doubting, which is just your own self-presuppositions, I'm talking about real questioning, then it's more like a sect or a cult than a church. It's saying, just believe it. I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm just going to tell you to do it. That's one problem. But there are plenty of churches that go the other way. They encourage you in your doubt, but they never challenge that doubt. And those sort of churches actually end up with people who are sceptics, people who are incredibly liberal, people who believe absolutely nothing, people who are cynical about absolutely everything. You can fall off either way. But Abram asks of God a real question and God gives to him a real answer. And so in verse 4 we read, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and God says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. One who is born from your own body. One who is born of your own wife. That is the one who will be your heir. And so to show that this is going to happen, he says, come on, come outside, Abram. We're going outside. Try doing this, but don't do it tonight. It won't work if you live in Sydney. Wait until you go out to western New South Wales. Head out to Cobar or Wilcannia. Or better still, go to Fiji or Tahiti. It'll work there as well. Don't do it tonight in Sydney because you just can't see them. But he said, come on, go out on a full moonless night and count the stars. One, two, see if you can do it. It actually doesn't say it here in Genesis 15, but when it's restated later on, it actually talks about the sand on the seashore. You can do that in Sydney. If you haven't got an essay to do tonight, go to Bondi, start at the south end. One, two, three. This is an amazing promise. So will your descendants be. This is not just a promise to put on an extra bedroom because he's having a son. This is the promise of a whole nation. It is an amazing promise. And you know what Abram does? We get to verse 6 now. He believes the promise of God and God counts that to him as righteousness. Now, what happens in the very next chapter? In the very next chapter, do you know what Abram does? He has a son, but he doesn't have the son by Sarai. That doesn't happen until chapter 21. He has a son by Hagar, Ishmael. Is he believing the promise now? Of course not. He's doubting the promise. And again he has to get back in the car. You see, you don't just become a Christian by faith and that's the end of it. The interplay between doubt and faith and doubt and faith is a daily Christian experience. And if you don't understand that interplay, you don't understand what it means to live the Christian life. That's what it means. Real doubt that is responded to by real faith. The walk of faith never ends. 
So let me ask you, what is harder? Is it harder to believe that Sarai will have a baby when at 70 years of age she's still unable to have a child? Is it harder to believe that the children of Moses' generation will actually be able to enter into the land and conquer the Canaanites? Is it harder to believe, as with Thomas, that Jesus actually rose physically from the dead? Is it harder to believe that those sins, you know the sins, the one that no one else in this room knows, those sins that weigh heavily upon your heart? Is it harder to believe that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow? What's harder to believe? How much doubt do you have? They're all about life out of death. They're all about resurrection out of condemnation. And Abram believed the Lord and God credited that to him as righteousness. And that's where most preachers finish when they preach on this passage. But if you're astute, and I'm sure you are because you are students of the university after which this whole city is named, uh, if you are astute, you will actually work out that he hasn't answered the question. I haven't really seen how faith counts for righteousness. I haven't really seen how, whether right, how it works that righteousness is a transferable commodity. Okay, I've established it in verse 6, but how does it work? Well, in verses 7 to 21, we actually see an amazing thing happen. This is so foundational for the understanding of the Bible. In verse 8, Abram again expresses doubt. Good doubt, good question, real question, looking for real answer, and he says, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How do I know this is so, God? And here's God's answer. It's in verses 9 to 11. It's a really funny answer. He says, Abram, go and get me some heifers, a heifer, and go and get me a female goat, and go and get me a ram. And go and get your, uh, your knife and cut them in half. Carcasses in half. And go and get me some turtle doves and go and get me some pigeons. Okay. Now all your doubts are allayed. The answer's clear. What does this passage mean? Now picture it. We cut the animals in half. We put half the animal on the left and half the animal on the right. The turtle doves are too little to cut in half. I know you can probably do them in a biology lab with your tiny little knives, but have you ever seen a turtle dove? You know, they're not big, okay? They're only little things. And so you put the turtle doves on either side, the pigeons on either side, and that's what God says for him to do. And then we see that God passes between these carcasses. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you some context. What we see happening here is a pre-literary contract. Let me tell you what a, what a literary contract is. You know how a literary contract is. You don't have to be studying law to know this. A literary contract is if I decide to put an extra bedroom on my house, uh, I'll actually speak to a, a builder and we will talk to such a point that we know the specifications, the cost, we'll have all the stuff that we have together to make a contract. I'll sign a contract, he'll sign a contract, and that contract will be binding. Now, what does that mean? 
That means that if I default on my payment to him, he can take me to court. It means if he defaults on his payment to me, in other words, he does shoddy workmanship, he finishes the building late or whatever, then I can take him to court and so there are penalties implied in the contract for if we disobey the contract. You know how contracts work. How do you make a contract in a society where people neither read nor write? That's when we have a pre-literary contract. Let me tell you how they work. They work in places like Papua New Guinea. You've probably seen it. Have you often wondered why people in such places get a great big bit of wood and slaughter a pig at a wedding? It's a pre-literary contract. It's saying, if I break my word... May it happen to me, may there be penalties, even as has happened to this pig. That's how it's working in a non-literate society. We have documents from the 8th century BC from Assyria where we see that there's two sorts of kings, a suzerain king and a vassal king. That's a big king and a little king. And the big king and the little king chop the heads off lambs, off sheep. And what they do is the two kings pass through the sheep and say, if I don't keep my side of the contract, may it happen to me as has happened to these sheep. Now, you might think that's pretty barbaric. I suppose it is. But you know what? It's happening all over Sydney today in kindergartens. You probably used to do it yourself. Before you could read and write, you probably entered into a pre-literary contract. It went like this. Cross my heart and hope to die. Do you know the second bit? Stick a needle in my eye. You barbaric individuals. <laughs> it's a pre-literary contract. If I cross my heart, if I don't keep my word, I hope to die. And boom, stick a needle in my eye. What are we seeing happening here? We remembered this last week with Anzac Day and it's an amazing thing. God is actually saying that there are things that are worse than death. Now we need to hear this. There are things that are worse than death. How do we see that in Anzac Day? At Anzac Day we actually remember that there are soldiers who were prepared to die rather than break contract or break covenant with their country. Soldiers, when they suffer torture, would rather die a good soldier than to break covenant with his fellow soldier. There are things that are worse than death. And when we see a pre-literary contract, the person is going through those animals and saying, I would rather die and be the prey of the vultures and all those who come to take these dead carcasses. I would rather die than betray my word in this contract. And so we see that God says my word is of greater value than my life. And so we see that Abram is told to bring these animals. Now here's an interesting thing for you. Later on, when the people of Israel had the temple, the temple had been built by Solomon, and they used to bring along animals to be sacrificed in the temple. Do you know what sort of animals they brought? Heifers. Goats. Even turtle doves, even pigeons, they're actually being reminded of the covenant that is cut with Abram 
at this time back in Genesis 15. And so we see that the sun is setting in verse 17. It's gone down. And a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass through the middle of the animals. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what a smoking fire pot is first. It's sort of a bit like a vase, sort of like a, a round, fat vase with a hole in the top of it. And inside a smoking fire pot, you'd get hot coals and you'd put them inside. Fill the fire pot with hot coals so it smokes out the top. And then they're still used today in lots of parts of the world. You'd get some dough and you'd wrap the dough around the outside of the smoking fire pot and you make a sort of a dampery sort of bread, like naan, that sort of smoky sort of, sort of bread. And so that's what they're used for. So here's a smoking fire pot. And you know what a fiery torch is, don't you? It's a piece of wood with a fire on the top of it. So here we have a smoking fire pot and a torch passed down the middle of these animals in this pre-literary contract. Abram's in a sleep and we see this happens. Now what does that mean? In Exodus 19 verse 8... Just before God gives the law to Moses, let me read it for you. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. In Exodus 20, when God gives the law, do you know what happens? The whole of Mount Sinai is enveloped in smoke. The children of the generation of Moses... Think about them as they're passing through the wilderness. What leads them by night? A pillar of fire. And then as the sun comes up through the day and as the sunlight hits that fire, it looks like smoke or a cloudy pillar. So there's smoke and there's fire. You don't have to be too bright to actually work out what is symbolised here within the books of Moses by smoke and fire. It's clearly symbolism for the presence of God. And God passes through and says that he will cut a covenant. I know your NIV and ESV says make a covenant. But let me tell you that the Hebrew literally says cut a covenant. It's confirming a covenant. Just as these animals are cut, just as the latest sign of the covenant that's going to be given two chapters later is going to be circumcision that is going to require cutting. So God is going to cut a covenant, establish a covenant with his people and he's going to pass through. Now let me tell you that those sort of pre-literary contracts are pretty, pretty impressive. Here's my suggestion to you. Next time you enter into a contract, if you want to buy a second-hand car, uh, when you go along to the used car salesman, say, let's not do a literary contract. Let's do a pre-literary contract. You might get better service you might get much more binding uh, commitment out of your used car salesman if he lies to you and otherwise he has to be cut in half. You might get good service. But you might say, how does that answer the question that we've been asking of what is the relationship between faith and righteousness and how does that mean that the righteousness of another can be counted for me? Well, listen to this. This is incredibly important. How many parties pass 
between the carcasses. What's Abram doing? He's sleeping. How many parties do you need for a contract? Two. God passes through the carcasses and God says, if I break my side of this covenant, may it happen to me as has happened to these animals. But Abram doesn't pass through. And God says, he's sitting down for this, Abram, if you break your side of the covenant, may it happen to me as has happened to these animals. May I be cut off if I have broken covenant. May I be cut off if you have broken covenant. The other three literary contracts, both parties walk between the carcasses. But Abram does not walk between those carcasses. God takes covenant malediction, covenant curse, should he disobey, and God takes covenant curse, should Abram and his seed disobey. What court of law is going to do that? When did the New South Wales Supreme Court say that we will take the curse of disobedience should somebody else disobey? Of course it doesn't. It's something that is so much greater than justice, although it is still just. It's actually what the Bible calls grace. God says, if I fail, I will take the covenant curse. If you fail, I will take the covenant curse. God says, I will cop disobedience that you might cop righteousness. Well, what does that mean for us? Centuries later, there was a time when the earth went dark again. It wasn't at night time as happened with Abram. It was actually in the middle of the day. And at that time, the sun went dark. And upon the cross, there was a man whose name was Jesus. And in the light of what had been promised to Abram, that God would be cut off if Abram and his seed disobeyed this covenant, we read Isaiah in Isaiah 53 that you've probably heard referred to before saying of this Jesus that he was cut off from the land of the living. In fact, this Jesus hangs on a cross and he cries, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for saying, my God, my God, why have you cut me off? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does Jesus do upon the cross? Jesus actually takes covenant malediction for our disobedience because God has said, if I fail, may I be cut off, and if you fail, may I be cut off. And so we see the Son of Man, Israel's Messiah, the seed of the line of Abram. His name is Jesus, the one of whom Isaiah said that he was a lamb led to the slaughter. 
just as these animals were cut in two, so we see him taking covenant malediction because God has taken both sides so we can take his righteousness. And you might say, well, that might answer the question of how righteousness can be a transferable quality, but how does faith merit righteousness? Well, there was a story in the Old Testament, I'm sure you know it. There was this little guy, his name was David. And there was this big guy whose name was Goliath. David, his other name was Christ. David, his other name was Messiah. I don't know if you've realised that the Messiah came with David. Let me tell you what the word Messiah means. The Messiah means the anointed. And David was the anointed one. And let me tell you what Christ means. Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed. And so when David fought, because he was the anointed one, was he fighting for himself or was he fighting for all of Israel? And the answer is, he was fighting for all of Israel. And Goliath, let me tell you about Goliath. His surname was Christ. His surname was Messiah. You might think, how does that work? Well, he's certainly not anointed by God, but he has been anointed by the Philistines. So if Goliath wins, the Philistines did win. And here they are, perched on two hills. And do you know what the people of Israel did? They put their faith in their Messiah, called David, and where because they put their faith in him, when he won, they won. And the Philistines put their faith in Goliath. Every student at the University of Sydney has a Messiah. Every student. Every student at the University of Sydney believes in their anointed one. For some of them it's academic success, for some of them it's popularity, for some of them it's good looks, for some, I don't know, all the messiahs that are fighting for them out there. For some of them it's family reputation, I don't know what it is. But depending on what messiah that you trust in will depend upon the outcome. And when the one who was none other than the son of God, who had said, if you fail, I will take the curse, comes and takes the penalty of being cut off, even as those animals are cut, he does it as the Christ. He does it as the anointed one. And so we, like the people of Israel, if we put our faith in him, then whether he wins or whether he loses, it's counted for us. And we know he defeats the power of Satan. We know that in his death, sins, that horrific sin, can be forgiven. We know that the victory of God is there because actually death does turn to life in terms of the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And so the question that that leaves us with is will you trust in what your Messiah has done? Will you trust in the fact that as these animals were cut that he was cut off for you that his righteousness might be credited to you And will you thereby put your faith and your belief in your Messiah? If you do, says Moses, if you do, says the writer to the Hebrews, if you do, says Paul, 
If you do, says Jesus, if you do, says the great confessions of the Reformation, if you do, says the EU doctrinal basis, if you do put your faith in him, it will be counted for you as righteousness. And that is what we call justification by faith alone. God says, if I fail, I will be cut off. God says, if you fail, I will be cut off. And he is. And he was. He took the curse of covenant malediction when Jesus died upon the cross. I don't know what you call it in your church. Maybe you call it communion. Maybe you call it the Lord's meal, the Lord's supper. There's lots of words for it, but you know what I'm talking about. The next time you go to a communion service, and they probably do something like this in your church, so whoever's leading the service out the front will take a bit of bread and he'll break it in half and he'll say the words of Jesus saying, this is my body that was broken for you. In the same way as in covenant renewal in the temple in the Old Testament, they were reminded of those animals that were cut in half that happened back in Genesis 15. So we see the one who is cut off, his body is broken. And we, reminded, we are reminded that God has sealed his covenant to us that we might respond by faith. How do you respond to that? Do you respond to that by doubt, questions? Does that raise questions for you? I hope so, but only if they're honest doubts and only if they're real questions. How do you respond to that? Does that actually make you overawed at the grace of God and the justice of God simultaneously? I hope so, because there's only one response to the covenant of grace. Abram believed the Lord and God counted that to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Our God and Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this not only with our mind but in our very being of what you have done of taking the curses of the covenant for us and we pray that we would respond in faith and in faith alone that it would be counted for us as righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.